You're tuned in to the future history of Ike Yard, episode zero of Formation Years. Hello, my name is Stefan Scott Nelson, and you are listening to the future history of Ike Yard. The musical group Ike Yard formed in 1980. They were a part of a group of artists that flourished in the New York underground music community. The members were Stuart Argabright, Kenneth Compton, Michael Diekman, and Fred Zemanski. I've been a fan of their music for about 10 years, and until recently I didn't know anything about their history. After reaching out to the band on Facebook about the current status of Ike Yard, the idea quickly materialized to create this podcast series. In 2017, I was very fortunate to be able to record some conversations I had with Stuart Argabright and Michael Diekman. They discussed the formation of Ike Yard and several other projects that followed after the group called it quits in 1983. In their brief lifespan, the group's number of performances was somewhere over 10. Currently, no video document exists of the 1980s group. This fact is just one of the reasons why I'm excited to share their story with you. So, by the time their pathetic pop discs had been twice spun each, there were two honey-nosed sun-by-eyed Now, Ike Yard was a very unusual group, I'd have to say right off the bat. Kenneth Compton, Michael Diekman, Fred Szymanski, Stuart Argabright, yours truly. So, after the Futons dissolved and didn't do any more shows, I went to back to D.C., I saw Clockwork Orange on TV, I thought about that, I looked at the book at the library and came back to New York maybe about three weeks later and was just back into the club scene again. And I've since looked at the list of shows like within the first two weeks of being back in town and it was like, uh, there were so many. I mean, between Mud Club and Tier 3, you could go almost every night, maybe, maybe except the weekends uh, because the weekends might end up becoming for people from out of town bridge and tunnel people as they used to call them then but during any weeknight you'd see magazine suicide ultravox any number of great groups in their total top prime first shows in new york you know kind of thing but down the street literally there's a place called tier three hillary was there booking she'd have raincoats she'd have basquiat's gray Gray, I think, played, well, certainly played Mud Club, too. But also had, it was going to be Joy Division's show. But then Joy Division didn't come. And so then New Order came, and they did the first show they ever did post-Ian. We didn't really meet them then, but that was the beginning of that future connection with Factory. What was that like? Did you, you saw that performance... Were you expecting anything? Because you were a fan of Joy Division. 
Yeah, so what, yeah. What, I think I, I, I think we were all so kind of devastated in a way that, uh, and then seeing them there, and they they were pretty. You know, I don't, I don't think there was a lot of smiles as I remember. You know. This is Michael Diekman, a member of Ikeyard, past and present. Definitely Stuart and I were, were fans of Joy Division, you know, and that was one thing when we first met, you know, talk about uh, our shared interest in music. And we were excited because Joy Division was booked to come to New York. I mean, it was just prior, obviously, to Ian Curtis passing away. They were supposed to play, and we were, you know, we, we were just like, okay, we're gonna be there. And they're gonna be playing some of the smaller clubs too. I, I know they were booked to tier three, and so then what happened is, I don't know if there was a delay, and I, I assume there probably was, because I don't think New Order would have just jumped right back in. When they finally came over here, they came over as a trio, which was, was interesting. I saw them, I think Stuart and I both saw them at tier three. I know they played another bigger show, possibly at Haraz. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I didn't go to that, but you know, tier three was you know, a, a very small but cool club. I mean, that was like the go-to place you know, in a, in a way, almost uh, a few blocks away from the Mud Club. So they played, and, it, and there's like barely even a stage in that space. What was interesting about them at that point is they were still trying to kind of decide what, what they were going to do next. I think what the first album was Movement, I believe, and that hadn't come out. So, you know, it was, it, then it was interesting to hear Movement when it was released and, and, you know, and hear it with the production and sort of the songs developed. So, I, I mean, who knows? It may have been even recorded by then. I'm not sure. But, but at that point, live, it was a, a different thing. But, you know, s certainly Peter Hook had a, a number of vocals um, at that time. And, um, you know, and it, was, and it was kind of interesting because you could see them as they were playing, working out new material. You know, they hadn't released a record yet. You know, it was a process that um, I sort of felt really like pulled into in a way, you know, because obviously, I, even though Ike Yard had been playing for a, a while, we at that point, I don't think we had done any live shows. So, you know, we were certainly going through a way, a process of kind of developing our own music. And to see these guys who we really, you know, I mean, we respected and just thought, I mean, Joy Division had been doing incredible music. It was something that was very provocative and pulled us in, in a way. I think there was, there was going to be the Joy Division show, and then instead, I'm pretty sure they came without him. And then that's, a, that's one show we saw, because we saw also Section 25, mm -hmm. other groups too, Certain Ratio came, and... Uh, but it was very tentative, very tentative, the New Order thing at that time, you know, because they were, they had not played uh, with electronics so much and so forth. Yeah. But still, it was a great, I mean, the great rhythm section of, of Joy Division. Yeah. I mean, that was a huge influence on the, on the next group that, uh, that we would go on to make, uh, yeah. which ended up being Ike Yard. I used to see Kenneth Compton around in the clubs, uh, particularly the Mud Club, where we all used to hang out. When I say all of us, there was a kind of a group that kind of seemed like we came up a bit like you could almost can remember when you were in school, when you'd come in with a new year and it was this whole new roster of people. And some of them eventually became people that you knew and some, but did, there always were some characters amongst them. When I got there and I started going to Mud Club, 
I immediately saw, I saw Jean-Michel Basquiat with his Godzilla haircut in very early days when he had just started to go there. Uh, Nick Taylor, who became uh, DJ High Priest with Death Comic Crew. Michael Holman and all those people who then fed into the Mud Club energy. Michael Holman bringing African Bombada down from Harlem to the Mud Club. So every night on the Mud Club, you're going to hear like pop music by M was, was a big hit at the time. We hear that record. But then you'd hear a pop group, She's Beyond Good and Evil. And then you'd hear Gary Newman and then Ultravox and so forth. And then maybe, you know, Suicide would play. And so, yeah, so it was really, every hour you spent there at the club, you were, was, yes. was very well spent. Tier three always had, you know, the other stuff like the raincoats and different other groups. Maybe because Hillary being a woman, you know, naturally booked, you know, I think the Delta Five, I think was there. Slits might have been tier three too. Uh, one of the great shows at the Mud Club was Suicide. And Suicide was, was such a revelation because there was, it didn't have to be punk, but it was totally street for sure. Yeah. And the music didn't sound broken by the time I saw them at Mud Club. Like some of the early stuff did where it was really kind of sound like a little bit more like being made with instruments that uh, just being cobbled together for, you know, you yeah. know, for that occasion. Yeah. There was a bit of a connection sonically. There was a guy, Boris Police Band, who, mm. who we put on New York Noise 3. Yeah. I think he just had like a scanner and some stuff, very little stuff. I mean, maybe a little headset or so. Tell the truth, I'm scared shit. Slow-moving target for any tough punks. Yeah, I know the beat, full of surprises. Don't feel safe on these streets with just a gun, a fuzz box, and a stick. My wife can't sleep. He was there uh, at, uh, at CBGB's. And Martin Rev lived on, I think, 4th Street, close to the Bowery there. And there would be a whole scene of like people hanging out and playing pool at these bars. And eventually Pill played at one of those bars. Between Phoebes and uh, CBGB's was another little venue, uh, Great Gildersleeves. And I think Pill, for their second show, New York played there. Small place, no one could get in, created a complete frenzy. And I think one of the, I think maybe the first time or maybe the next time they played in New York was uh, at the Palladium, which is a big place on 14th Street. And Kenneth Compton remembers meeting me there back behind the club where you could hear the music. Actually hear Pill playing because, oh. because we couldn't get in. Yes. So, yes. so we went back there and we were hanging out and uh, I was there and Ken, uh, you know, you know, me and Ken were both there. And uh, he's like, yeah, I remember that night, you know, you know night, that, that night we met. What it was, was uh, they, have, they have to open the ventilation and so that you could hear the music pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then uh, I also knew him from the Mud Club. I would see him out. So he, he was part of a crew too. There was a crew that kind of came from up by Columbia University area, uh, up in like the, up in like uh, 112th Street and so forth, 112th Street in St. Nick's. I was going out with a woman from there, and then I met her friend Lisa Rosen and her 
brother was Danny Rosen, who had played with the Futons at the very end. Okay. And then his friend was Kenneth Compton. We ended up talking about music. I said, you know, I want to make something. Let's do something. Let's get together. I played with a couple people. I, I had worked with a... <clears throat> I had known the people from the group Material. And uh, I liked their guitar player. Checked him out. Didn't seem like an immediate fit. But then when me and Ken started playing together, it was an immediate fit. Yeah, well, I was playing drums still. You were playing a regular... Just a regular kit, small kit, very, kind of minimal. Yeah. I, was, I was into uh, uh, Yukihiro Takahashi from YMO and uh, okay. Steve Morris okay. from, Steve Morris from yeah. uh, Joy Division. Yeah. Just, just kind of minimal stuff, but then with some, with some other things. And, but uh, stripping it down... But Ken was, you know, Ken had had these bass lines, and you hear it in the in the first record, night after night EP. We started to play together. We would play together once a week, maybe, and then uh, it got to be a bit more. After about five times or so, we we were putting out a word. You know, can we find some other people? During those five times we played downstairs, this, this was that. Lydia Lynch's uh, drummer, Bradley Eros, from Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Bradley had a rehearsal space. We could play there for $7 an hour and uh, make music. But sometimes a Jean-Michel Basquiat would come by and knock on the door. <laughs> eventually, you know, I think I, eventually I said something like, well, you know, Jean-Michel, you, you know, you, you get, what are you going to do when you come in? You know, what are you going to play? So next time, knock, knock, knock. Jean-Michel, <laughs> so he had a cornet, a little horn, but it was broken. But uh, Kenneth remembers that we did let him in as okay. one time, but okay. <laughs> I, I, I blanked on that if that, if that did indeed happen. Discrepancy. Uh, <laughs> eventually, we kept going. We started to make some of the riffs that you hear in the early tapes of the group. We asked a friend, uh, Fred Dewey, uh, you know, did you know anybody who could play with us? I certainly was thinking that at least, you know, it would be at least a guitar, you know, and possibly could be keyboards or whatever else, right. you know, we'll, we'll just see what the configuration is going to be. But Fred recommended Michael Diekman and Fred Szymanski, and uh, they had known each other at Brown University. They had uh, done classes together, I guess, with composition, electronic music, maybe even history and so forth. Yeah. They had done some specifically project together and so forth, uh, and maybe had lived within the same, you know, kind of college town or so for some, yeah. I don't know exactly how long it is, Michael will tell you. Yeah, well, Fred and I, you know, we had been friends back in art school. So, um, so we'd known each other for a while. We had actually even ended up uh, co-composing an electronic music piece in 1976, because I was taking classes at the McCall Electronic Music Studio at Brown University. Had done a piece in 75 on my own, a tape piece. You know, Fred certainly encouraged me to even get involved in, in studying the electronic music. So I, I suggested we uh, get together and, and work on a piece. And it came off really well. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's kind of a music concrete piece, but, you know, using Moog synthesizer stuff, um, effects, you know, we like to process things. I mean, we were 
chopping up the tape, flipping things over. You know, they had a grand piano that we could record on um, too and, and ended up piecing it together. And then this piece was um, kind of performed what we'll call mixed live um, at two shows, one at, at Brown and then another um, up at Massachusetts College of Art, I think in the seven, spring of 76, I believe, so. I like the fact that you were already collaborating with Fred Zemanski. This is way before the formation of Vikyard. And I guess it was through a mutual friend, Fred Dewey, that put you in touch with Stuart and Kenneth? Well, you know, Fred Dewey had been a friend going back to Providence, Rhode Island. We were part of a group of people, you know, my first um, kind of new wave band that I was in up there, Moon Maid and Theories of Exchange. You know, he was um, friends with the, the whole group and would hang out. And he, you know, he's originally from New York. After he finished school, he moved back about the same time that I moved into the city. He had seen the Futants, Stewart's prior band, and had encouraged me to check them out. So I, I did see them twice, and I think maybe the last time I saw them was at Squat Theater. There was a, like a kind of a 24-hour music festival, which was very cool because they had kind of band after band. I don't remember if material played, but, but one of the interesting things was even um, Ken played also in that festival as well, but not with Stewart. So that was kind of the first time I actually saw Ken performing. Yeah, he played with a, a friend of his, they, they're just kind of a guitar-bass duo. And then I think Ken also was on stage uh, with John Lurie's band. I really liked the Futons. I, I, I don't think I may have been introduced to Stuart. You know, I'd gone with um, Fred to see that. I heard th from Fred later in the summer that Stuart was looking to put together another band post-Futons. So Fred called me and, and said, hey, give Stuart a call, here's his number. And I did, and um, you know, then Stuart and I had a, a meeting, he came over to my place, you know, we sat down and we found out that we really shared a lot of the same interests in music and cinema and um, literature, very much uh, in, the, in the same uh, area. So w what happened after that is, um, I think it was uh, in August, I'd set up a date to get together and just jam. At that point, I also said to Stuart, I said, you know, I have a, a friend, Fred Szymanski, who uh, has an EMS synthesizer. He's doing really interesting stuff. Fred and I had, you know, tried to get something going earlier. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to bring him into the jam rehearsal and see what happens. So he was like, cool, yeah. So, uh, so the four of us got together that August, uh, 1980, and uh, went up to Fox Studios, um, which was on Broadway and 18th Street. It was, I, we had a great session, I mean, immediately. It, it, I was just blown away. Yeah, when, uh, immediately we got together to, to, with them and uh, I checked Michael out. Sounded good, uh, let's get together, play. Always a thing with the group, as it was starting to become a group. We went from being the two people kind of riffing together and just making music. We didn't really have titles or anything yet or anything, um, but then when those two did a session with us. You know, we played for a while. We all kind of looked around at each other. It's kind of like, well, hey, yeah, check it out. You know, it's pretty interesting. And Michael always remembers it as, uh, well, you know, you guys were already had all this rhythm stuff together. So, you know, from the get-go, we'd be like... <laughs> you know, going into something, you know, and like, uh, he's like, you know, all he had to do would be like... <laughs> You know, some, uh -huh. some kind of scronk or whatever. Yeah, and yes. uh, and uh, Fred, uh, Fred Szymanski originally uh, 
I think he, what did he have in the first session? The first session, I think he had a synth that he, that he did have. And at some point there, he, he got uh, the suitcase, suitcase synthy. Oh. One of those things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, uh, those. and uh, that was pretty great. And you hear that on the very early stuff before the uh, EP. Myself, Stuart, and Kenneth got together with uh, Fred and Michael, and we started doing sessions. Uh, I think almost all of us were doing some kind of day jobs and stuff, and so it was like I talked with Michael and uh, by phone, I think, and maybe met him, and then we said, okay, you know, next week or the week after whatever, let's get together and play. And so we did, and it began the kind of journey of uh, of like, how do you make that music every time when you get together. Often you have a place, or maybe eventually you get a place where you have a studio where you can leave stuff set up. But for probably the, f I don't know how many times, the first four times at least that Ike Yard, what became Ike Yard, four-piece Ike Yard, get together, we'd have to go to a studio. So you have to set up. Get oh, ready, yes. yeah, yeah. You know, and then in the end, Renting. break down, you know, too. Renting by the hour. Renting by the hour, yes. you know, um, plenty of them in Manhattan. Yep. Found some good ones. We got pretty good at it. We we got pretty good at recording our own stuff, you know, and kind of being in that mode of like, you know, the beginning of a piece. People are quiet. Start to tape. At the end, people come to some kind of form of an ending. You know, you just give it a little different taste because you're recording, you know. Yep. So we'd get together and we would just work through just kind of moods and stuff and riffs and uh, eventually start to pull together the, what became the sound. I mean, Fred at first was playing, throwing sounds into the mix because we already had bass and drums and guitar could join pretty easily. You know, as you as you hear on the first EP, even like night after night, you know, you know, drums are rolling, the bass lines going, guitar plays on top. Yeah. Fred's just kind of riding it, and once in a while you hear a you hear a kind of ghostly tone that's moving through there. Maybe you have to hear it with headphones. headphones. tracks on that record you hear you'll hear the group the, the guitar bass and drums are playing and then suddenly we'll hit a note and all four of us will hit together and there'll be like a splash of Fred's 
kind of bloopy uh, oscillator sense going. Then, of course, we had that kind of sound going. We put together some material. Some of the earliest pieces are on the acute uh, reissue from 2006, the Eichyard 1980-1982 collected. Uh, now, I think, sold out and now gone, but uh, uh, you hear pieces like the Whistler, where it's based on bass and drums, uh, just figures and stuff. went from being kind of a group, including synthesizers, to then we got a drum machine. And then Fred began programming drum patterns. Okay. And uh, that was fun. for me because the way we handled the percussion from the beginning uh, already I'd been a drummer in a couple groups already it's it's a fine thing to do but I thought well I'd like to do something more instead of just play just play drums because for live you can't do too much more and I wasn't so good at singing and drumming at the same time so we went ahead and pre-recorded my drum tracks I'd just be doing some crazy roll or something that me and Ken okay. would work out and uh, then Ken would play on top of it. He could lock in on it, on the pattern. And uh, then I could play keyboards. And so there's a few of those pieces. Uh, there's kind of a, if, if there is a whole group of unreleased early period Eichyard, that's kind of a sound okay. that, we okay. used, that we had there for a while. Um, that then led to what you hear on the first EP, which was, you know, was us going to a fine studio and working with a very sympathetic engineer. But... <laughs> You know, we chose to work on the sound for a while before we played live, and so I think it was probably about a year that we we started to think about labels, and we started to think about uh, how we're going to get a label, and we made one cassette, and we sent it to Krupp School, and that gave us our deal. When you say one cassette, you made one copy. One copy, yeah. one label. Yeah, you one know. copy, one label. Yeah. So at that time, what did that label represent? to you? I would say that we probably looked at records that we liked and uh, a lot of them were coming from England and uh, uh, somehow the Belgian crepuscule label, the aesthetic and the, the visuals too 
I think we just kind of made a short list and maybe, uh, maybe they topped it. We didn't know, uh, I don't think we knew or were, or were so you know, predicated on doing it based on a connection with factory, but they did have that too. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they were factory Benelux, yes. you know, yeah. uh, the Belgian wing of factory. So there was a point, though, where Michel Duval from Crepuscule, who responded to our tapes, you know, oh, oh, hey, you know, let's do a record. So we set about making the first record. There was a point after we did that record where, where I think it was he who said, well, you know, you're going to do the next record with factory. Crepuscule released that a certain ratio, uh, seven inch, which was great. And there was, you know, it was also the factory Benelux side label too. So, you know, I had been following that and had been reading about Crepuscule. Maybe there was a, a piece in one of the British magazines, at, you know, NME or, you know, we thought, well, let's try this, you know. Um, it, you know, it's a shot in the dark. You know, it was kind of interesting because we've been rehearsing for like a year before we actually, let's see, it's 80, 80, yeah, well, and maybe not, not a year, but you know, nine months before we actually got, got the deal. But we, we just really focused on you know, g getting fairly good recordings of the rehearsals. Uh, we weren't doing any overdubbing or anything, but it was you know, basically good, solid live stuff. So we put together a cassette. I don't remember how many songs were on it, you know, maybe four, who knows, uh, maybe six. And we, we sent it off, you know, we, we got the, contact information. And at that point, I, I don't remember there being someone saying, here, you should write these guys. Because, you know, Factory America hadn't really been set up really at that point. We reached out and then Michel Duval wrote back to us and he said he was going to be, he was very interested. Said he'd be coming to the city and wanted to meet. For some reason, I decided to meet him at a Belgian restaurant that must have been sort of like strange, you know, like, why, why do I have to eat Belgian food in New York? But we, you know, we all got together, and he definitely was into it. And we, he said, I want to do an EP, and that's, that's what we did. That also ended up being the beginning of what became Factory America, because he, I guess, already knew Michael Schamberg. And so Michael came in as the person that was kind of handling the money, almost. You know, like, we'll book the studio, which we chose. We were very happy with this. A lot of downtown, kind of more experimental New York people had been recording there. And that's how we first were really introduced to Michael Schamberg. There was another recording done right, right around the same time with his girlfriend, Miranda. That was a seven inch, two songs. What happened is that Fred Szymanski worked on that with her. He recorded, I think he did some synth and maybe some drum machine work on one of the songs. So those two were the first pieces done in New York for the label. Um, I know later on they did some other work with a few other people. But, but, you know, we were the first um, New York bands to work with uh, Crepuscule. And then that ended up developing, as time went by, over the next six months, nine months, you know, doing the Factory America record. did the first record, uh, Crepuscule record. Uh, we figured out how much time in the studio it was going to take. 
had a good, pretty good idea. We were already pretty good with being able to set up and make something happen. Great engineer, uh, Greg Curry, in a great studio. Uh, Sorcerer Sound in Soho. Okay. Kind of famous place for some types of music. Yeah. But it was like our first experience ever with like a cushy, lights are low, pro studio. You work into the night and you, you know, people are working hard and yeah. you make some great shit. Yeah. So he, w he never balked at all at any, any of our ideas about doing things. And we didn't do anything so crazy, but to even have, uh, you know, for example, we isolate the drums first on some things like night after night just to get a certain sound, certain production, and then the rest of the group played on it. Some things we tried to do live. I think Motive, for example, maybe that has Fred's uh, drum machine, and then I'm playing percussion on it too. And so, you know, a lot of it was, a lot of it was live uh, because we played as a group. We were always a group. It was always a group. And, you know, for young people today, you know, you can do it all yourself. You can do it all on your computer. You can be the idea guy, the songwriter, publisher, mixer, but there's something about playing with a group that you should try if you, and try to experience if you can, because it's uh, it's um, it could be so unusual and so unexpected that you just roll with it, and then then, then you realize that you're onto something. So. did that first record in a certain way where we felt that we had 100% freedom and we liked the result pretty much 100%, we could feel, because uh, we learned in the studio and we learned with the mixing, particularly the mixing, uh, watching Greg help us and stuff. And, uh, but we more or less produced the record ourselves um, with uh, Greg Curry's help and the studio helpers help there yeah. at that place. Um, then we played live and we did our first shows. Um, one was kind of an unofficial show at a place called Chase Park and then one was an official one and that, and that one did have Lydia Lunch. Lydia Lunch is 1313. Okay. Okay. It was Ike Yard, 1313 and Suicide at Chase Park. I only recall doing the second show with Suicide and they were both at the same location, Chase Park which was a, a pretty cool club just, uh, it was on Broadway, just south of Houston Street. A nice venue, actually, pretty good sound system. We got booked September 81 there. We were booked with another band. <laughs> I think they were called Baby Buddha. I'd never really heard of them. You know, so we played a show with them. The guy that managed the place was really liked the show. When we hung out afterwards and got paid, he had uh, nice words. Uh, I, I, although I remember initially when we sent him the demo, before we got the gig, we had Motive on it. And, and we'd already recorded the EP, so I think we just sent him the EP as our demo tape. He kind of questioned, he said, referring to Motive, and he said, so what's up with that Miles Davis Miles shit? Tree was kind of scratching his head. But anyways, he was impressed. So what happened is and then he contacted us just a month later and said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this other show with Suicide and Lydia Lunch's new band, 13.13, uh, which were guys from out in uh, Los Angeles. 
I forget which punk band they had come from, but were, were the headliners, and uh, we were going to open, and Suicide was going to go on uh, second. And that, that was a, you know, a, a great show to be involved in. I mean, good crowd. I think probably Ken and Stewart had probably had conversations with guys in Suicide before, and I, I'm pretty sure from that, but um, I'd never really met them. You know, I'd seen them live, some of the Mud Club in 79 or something like that. Chase Park was an amazing place. It was called Chase Park because it used to be an ex-Chase Bank. And I think it reminded people of Diamond Dogs, Bowie Says. Uh, Halloween Jack is a real cool cat. He lives on top of Manhattan Chase. Elevator's broke, so he slides down a rope down to the streets below. And there was, there's the Chase Park. And also had a bit of Gary Newman in there too, down in the park. So it was a cool place right at the corner of Houston and Broadway. And we went up there to play. And yeah, it was one of those classic New York shows where you saw, it's like, yeah, did you see all three of the groups? And uh, afterwards, uh, Alan Vega, I think, said something to Kenneth about, about uh, Oh yeah, you, you know, you know, you guys are it, you know. Like, you know, and we were just like. He he said that after seeing you. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I heard it in the moment, but I but later on Kenneth told me, and Kenneth had a friend who was a very close friend of Alan Vega, okay. so I think it came from Alan. You know, you know, Marty did say a lot. Marty would smile, and Marty was very nice, yeah. and I'm friends with Marty now. Yeah. Uh, and I never was so, uh, so uh, I never had the occasion to be to be uh, friends with Alan. But uh, fantastic group, fantastic shows. Every show was was so killer, and uh, they didn't never waste a moment. Poor one for Alan Vega and Suicide. Everybody should listen to Marty Rev's new album when yeah. they get a chance, because yeah. he's uh, he's got a new label. He's with a new label, and he's got a new album, and he's gonna he's gonna blow your speakers clean a little bit for you. It's a little bit of a head cleaner for you. He's great. Yeah. He's great. So cheers, Marty. The sounds you're about to hear are seven excerpts from Martin Rev's 2017 record, Demolition 9.
What's that down in that sewer? Mr. Apollo. What you doing in that sewer? Mr. Apollo. What you doing in that sewer? There's no more music. How many gigs do you believe that Ike Yard had? I haven't recently sat down and really counted them, you know, right. and I'm thinking soon after the show I was just describing, we opened for New Order in November um, at Ukrainian National Home. We had to end up changing our set because we, had, we were having such trouble with the sound. We looked at each other and said, okay, we're changing the set, you know. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do these two songs, which don't use the drum machine next, and just go with that and see how it builds. <laughs> uh, Michelle Duval, who was there from Crepuscule that night to kind of support us, told us when we were um, backstage. He's like, he said, you know, don't don't go on yet. He said the sound man, the sound man hates you. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, okay, yeah, what are we gonna do about that? Uh, we didn't bring our own sound guy, so. Uh, so we had a problems initially with the Dr. Rhythm we were using. I think we were only getting like the right channel, you know, so we, we were missing aspects of the beat and we ended up got one song in or so using it. We switched it out and said, all right, we're gonna change the set suddenly. We're gonna drop the, the rhythm machine for now and just go with the live pared down drum kit. So we kind of reached back to some kind of older material that we were doing earlier in 81. You know, some of it came off fine. I mean, there was a good energy when uh, Peter Hook sort of came up and decided to help out the sound guy yeah. and take over. You could tell there were some problems. By then, we were able to go back and finish the set with some of the tracks with using the Dr. Rhythm, which was good. Okay, so, you know, okay. but it was a bit of a, of, of a kind of jumping all over the place with that show. But, um, you know, it was a good experience, ultimately. And then in December, we did um, actually a, a really great show at CBGB's. We have the board recording of that. Some of that stuff is, um, sounds really good. In a way, I, at least in my point of view, was closer to what we were doing in rehearsals uh, than the show we ended up doing for New Order. We were back to approaching it the way we wanted to. In fact, we had one track that didn't use essentially um, sequencers, synth, synths and guitar, and then Ken singing and, and, and basically playing hi-hat. <laughs> <laughs> but really interesting stuff. We were starting to move in the direction of what was going to happen when we went into the studio for the Factory album. So, I mean, I don't think any of, the, any of those tracks that we did live at CBGB's were ended up on, on the album. But, you know, Soyez, um, I think we re released that on the Acute website, the live version of Soyez from CBGB's oh. was up there. And that might be, who knows, that might be floating around somewhere. Okay.
the show we were doing was with the Del Byzantines. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, okay. So. Jim Jarmusch's band. Right? Yeah, Jim yeah. Jim Jarmusch was uh, played keyboards with them, and That's cool. and it was it was a nice show to do it with them. Also, we we did do a show prior to this, something early on. Also, before New Order, we did a show at this old movie theater, which was on Second Street between B and C, and there was a festival down there, which I'm escaping my mind, but it was you know like a three or four day festival, uh, and we we did a show. Um, also, I think with the Del Byzantines there, but it, it was kind of a crazy venue. We were going down to see, I think Wall of Voodoo from LA was playing one night, and and we want, wanted to go check him out, and uh, we're walking down uh, 2nd Street, and we get to the corner of Avenue B, and we look around, and they're just gangs of teenagers waiting to rob everybody, oh. um, walking over there, and we, you know, of course, we get, you know, we get jumped uh, at gunpoint, and you know, my my wife, then my girlfriend, <laughs> starting to argue with her. I was like, let's just <laughs> just give him the money here. Here's my five dollars. Right. Right. You know, and they were just kind of basically, uh, you know, just cleaning up as people were walking in. So we didn't even end up going that night. It was kind of turned us off. And I, I think um, another night, the theater itself got robbed. So they ended up having to have like really heavy duty security that they hired, you know, kind of lo local guys to come in and uh, protect the club. It's kind of crazy. Right. But, you know, it was an interesting festival. I think I think R.E.M. may have played there also the first time oh. there in New York. I didn't see them, but oh, weird. we also later on, you know, once we got started working with Factory, did some shows with Section 25. We did yeah. two shows with yeah. them, Love you know, Peppermint Lounge show, uh, one at Maxwell's. Uh, you know, I, I mean, how many shows did we do? I, I mean, maybe maybe a dozen. I don't know. first two years of playing live, roughly 82, 81, 82, 81, 82, yeah, because yeah, we were gone by 83. Played a New Yorican, New Yorican lounge, which became like the New Yorican poetry thing that still exists today down on East 3rd Street. Uh, where else? And we might have played uh, Peppermint Lounge with Section 25. That was fun because that, that was another factory group, you know, for us to play with. And they had, Incredible. They, they had a cool sound. Yeah. And we kind of got along with them, so it was, yeah. it was, a little, it was different from uh, playing with New Order. And so, so it wasn't like, oh, hi, New yeah. Order, we're Ike Yard. Yeah. But what happened when we played with them was, uh, before we played, we heard, someone said, uh, the sound man hates you. So we were like, that's great. <laughs> yeah, sound guy hates you. Uh, I don't know whether that was after our sound check or what, but uh, when we got up to play, we started to play. Fred was definitely already starting to generate some stuff, some some uh, patterns and uh, sounds. But uh, Ken's bass was not in the mix, so it's like we were, nothing. We were kind of like, you know, doing whatever we could. Peter Hook jumps up, mixing board. You hear on the track called 20 on the acute compilation, 
you'll hear Ken's bass come rising up in the mix in a gentle but forceful way, <laughs> steady way. And that's uh, Peter Hook uh, jumped in, fixed the sound. came out, got some great reviews. I remember in Melody Maker, uh, our record was reviewed and in Rolling Stones was second. You know, it was like an emotional rescue or something like that, you know. Really? But, but the Ike Yard review in Melody Maker was like, Ike Yard, come in, come in wherever you are. You know, like riding a, riding a near velvet's monotone. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah. You know, a lot of the reviews of the first record talk about the vocals. The, the, the intelligible uh, mumblings of a bomb on the subway. <laughs> we're like, yes, that's exactly what we're aiming for. We did those shows. We learned how to play live. Next thing was we wanted to be able to rehearse in a regular way, too, because we thought things were kind of, we're, yeah. we're definitely moving. Yes. Uh, and so we heard from Mike Jira, who had a group, Circus Mort. Circus Mort was his group. And of course, later he did Swans, but he did Circus Mort. They invited us to share their space in a place called the Music Building up in the 30s uh, on the west side. In that building, like next to us, was a group called The Senders, kind of like, I don't know, punky R&B 50s kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we would be playing, or we would stop playing, and then they'd start a song, and like you'd hear on the tape, like, you know, like there's like the band is playing and next next door, and it was that, that close in. Circus Mort. They had a drummer, Jonathan Kane. They had a guitar player, bass player, keyboard player, and Mike was singing. And uh, so they had all their equipment there, and we would just set up our stuff and take it down because if we tried to set it up and leave it up, it would be, it would be too much. Mm -hmm. But by that point, I had a synthesizer too. The Korg MS-20. I got it from my dominatrix friend. Uh, uh, oh. After seeing her at Maxis, Kansas City. Uh, and, and, and we kind of started to hang out. Eventually she moved to another place on 14th Street and she had a loft and she needed to get the place painted. So I offered to help her and we, I painted that place. Eventually I brought Michael in, Michael Diekman in to do some work too. He did some and uh, uh, part of her payment to me was that synth synthesizer. No way. Oh, wow. And the Korg MS-20. That's so cool. Uh, and that's your, really your first synthesizer. Yeah. Yep, it was indeed. By then, Let's see. First record was really guitar, bass, drums, metal percussion, and Fred. Fred with, uh, he had drum machine, rolling drum machine, maybe 303. And by the album, big difference was he got the Korg Central Controller. And then that was like, a, like another piece. And then all of us fed in to that piece. The central controller. Korg. Because what he could do with it then was, and then you hear it on the factory album, the sound changed totally because we, he could make the drums, which he was still programming, by the way. The whole second album, uh, well, the second record, uh, is, is Fred programming drums too. And uh, he wanted to make them sound like different things. So he has, sometimes they sound like wood. He just changed, he would just change, he would work with harmonizer. And, uh, and those things, space station, space station, space station, space station, space station, space station. 
we would just tweak those things in the studio. we could do some of those studio things in the first record because we had a lot more control and the engineer was much more savvy. The factory record is a bit drier because the engineer was not that savvy about electronic music and as a matter of fact we had to, it wasn't a struggle but it was an issue. Really? For sure. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because not like the Crepuscule record which was put together with care, factory record was kind of, oh well, okay now you're with factory. And so now you're going to go to the studio, and the cover is going to be with this artist, yeah. and then you find a little of the of the small print. Oh well, you don't even really get to approve the cover. It's going to be done by an artist that we know, and it may even cost more than the recording. So by so you know, no one ever said be careful about the budget for the recording, but it was already apparent what was kind of going on. So. I think we can remember where we sometimes had to say like, oh, sorry to a member, sorry, we can't record another track of you doing something because we've got to go now, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, and that studio wasn't cool in that way to say like, oh, we need another, few. We need another 15 minutes or need another half hour, you know, or whatever. Yeah. They were like already burnt out from dealing with us like recording backward symbols for Kino or something. They're like, you know. Right. Or like record the symbols and then play them backward, you know, to flip the tape. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, yeah. flip the tape. <laughs> yes, and so we would get those effects. And that was what they go. It was. Also on the factory album, the drum effects, like on Mark Kurtz, you know, it's like a. You can, you can move. You, you can move. Walloping things that we would do that, uh, you know, you have extra 20 minutes in the studio and you sit there and you work it out. You know, you would yeah. work out some cool stuff. Yeah. We it's knew. It's all over that. It I is. Think. It is. Uh, uh, we used it kind of for each mix. We would get up, we would try to get up some cool sound that we hadn't heard before. Yeah that we could kind of like say like, we better record it because we'll never have it again. You know? yeah. So that was kind of a lot of our motivation. Yeah, so that's the difference between, you know, we, had, we could go deeper in some things with the harmonizer and with uh, different effects, but th that studio called The Ranch <laughs> in, in uh, Midtown Manhattan didn't have any special gear, and that was an issue too, they didn't have outboard gear. They didn't. Not not a not a lot, really? and, and and not you know as much as we would have liked. We can remember. Did you have a record producer for the second one? No. That was still produced by. That's us, yeah. And you had an engineer. Uh, barely. 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 Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Bar that record, barely functional. Record barely functional. Quite incredible to me. That's that's our work. Yeah. 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 Because we already knew how to make a so record. It is you. You guys produced it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. fantastic. Because because we'd already worked with Greg, with uh, Greg Curry, and he kind of showed us the sympathetic way of how you build from drums up, and you know if yeah. the drums sound good, you have a good chance of everything yeah, yeah. else. You know, sitting on them in a good way, yeah. and so I think we've always stuck with those kind of techniques. And uh, by the time of the album, 
the time we spent to actually record the tracks, you know, by then I think every piece is six minutes. There's a uniformity to them, and uh, they're kind of more, they're something between songs and like extruding material from the machines, I would say, uh, which to some extent it was. On, I think, every track, all four of us are hooked in together. Yeah. Ken sometimes plays bass lines. You'll hear clear bass guitar, yeah. but often he's also playing a bass synth, too. Uh, Michael's playing, is triggered in with a synth. We never really talked about it, but I think we operated in a kind of a strata and landscape kind of like a reference point to where often Fred would start with drums in some kind of you know, sequence yeah. or something. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, then all you got to do is just jump on, you know, yeah. it's not so tough. Uh, Fred would always elaborate as we're going through. Sometimes the song, would, the rhythm would buckle and he would stop and go into like a whole nother mix and we'd be like, all right, here we go, you know, and, and it, it would like go into something and you hear that on the factory record. And it's almost like funk music, but it's funky only because it's, it's repetitive enough. And also Ken, when he played, would be sometimes pretty funky with the bass. And that was the weird funkiness that Ikeyard uh, generated at the time. We, and then, you know, when I would finish something, then Michael would do something, and Ken would do something. Okay. And we kind of would just naturally give each other the space yeah. and, and love it when, when one of us, you know, then it would come back to Fred, and Fred would go, like, Fred would introduce the hi-hat, like, like, like yeah. finally on Lost, like yeah. you hear the hi-hat come in. Let the voices great. Let the voices great. Posted all the other, the other night. They had the, the Regis Regis remix, and, uh, and someone says, "Oh, the hats." It took me a second to say, "Oh, okay." So, you know, I guess he's talking about hi hats. Yeah, yeah. The hats. The hats. You know. The hats are happening on yeah, that yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we got pretty good with that drum machine, and we were always processed everything. What drum machine? Uh, well, first it was Doctor Rhythm, I think it was Boss or Roland. Dr. Rhythm, and then became the Dramatics, I guess it was called. Yeah. A little bit bigger. Yeah. And that you had more fun with, and you started to hear records being made using that. The Dr. The, the, the rhythm, rhythm and the Rhythmatics was a little bit, maybe, they were a little bit simpler. And the sounds weren't as good. It was a little more like a popcorn, right. popcorn maker. Right. Or like, you know, for like a, you know, salsa accompaniment. The group split up in 1983. In 2007, a year after Acute Records released the anthology Ikeyard 1980-82 Collected, the band reformed, but this time without Fred Zemanski. Now we will hear from Stuart and Michael about what the group have been working on. Uh, Fred, Fred kind of started to opt out when we 
started to reform uh, uh, okay. uh, after the after the acute release. Okay. What happened was uh, there started to be a lot more people knew who Ike Yard was, and so we decided that we should do a reissue. Many more people knew about it. Became a thing to why don't we play live? So we really had to re rev it all back up. Yeah, yeah. We did it that time. That led to the new material that became 2010's Nord, Nord album. And uh, we liked that album too because that was the first stuff that we did when we got back together for the first time. Yeah. And then we kind of fell apart and then we got back together again and made the stuff that will be coming out this fall and also next year. Uh, this fall will be the EP. Next year will be the album. It's all new material. It's, I feel easily some of the best stuff we've ever done, for sure. And uh, because we've, uh, in the years in between, we learned so much and we can play so much different kinds of music. By now, we are pretty cavalier with genres and that we are kind of uh, working with now and uh, throwing around and, and working with, colliding and uh, uh, remaking in our way. So you'll hear all that on the record, and uh, also for, for the first time, you're going to hear us work with the female vocalists, and that's been uh, a lot of fun. We have uh, Kamala from Tropic of Cancer. We have Yuki, the, the Japanese young woman, uh, doing vocals on Sister M. We have Maya doing vocals on Beyond Your Say, the album Closer. Three drum machines all together just rippling in some kind of a space-time thing. And then the vocals come, you know, floating yeah. too. And, uh, and what's the other vocal? There's uh, Erica Bell, our friend Erica, doing her almost Panic in Detroit type soulful vocals for Slaves of Janet, the last cut on the EP. Total S and M track, just like uh, Cherish Eight or something from the album. You know? Nice, nice. Actually, it is lyrics from '82. Sometimes when I look, when I went back, I found some good lyrics I didn't didn't use. So, for example, the song on the new EP is, uh, is "Slaves of Janet" is is actually lyrics from '82. Wow. You know, like, I'm so excited to hear what you've been working on. I'm sure that a lot of people are. So this is an exciting moment. That's cool. It's a really exciting That's cool. moment. I think that the new material, the EP that's coming out in October, titled Sacred Machine is the, the name of the EP, and then we have an album we're finishing, which hopefully will be out maybe during the first half of 2018, but we'll see. I, I think it's the best stuff we've ever done. We've put a lot of work into it. I mean. In some ways, we've, we started the process really in 2013 recording an album based on the tracks that, that we'd been doing live when we were doing shows, um, you know, starting in 2007, 2008 or whatever, and developing the new songs. But then what happened is we sort of set it aside and then we started playing a small European tour. In 2014, we were invited to do these festivals, one in, in Berlin, and then one in Japan, a big outdoor festival, and we're asked to do you know at least 60-minute sets. And we started writing more material and rehearsing. And as we were doing it, we were also recording multi-track you know, in Pro Tools, all the rehearsals. So 
we ended up going back and realizing that there was a lot of really great stuff there that was a new development. So, so the new album is going to be a mixture of some of these things. You know, we certainly went back and there's a good deal of the things that we initially recorded and, and continue to work on after 2013. You know, overdub, rearrange, some great stuff. It's definitely not as stripped down as the Factory album. I mean, I, I, you've heard Nord. It's definitely, I think, the recording quality, the depth of what we're doing, just so far beyond it. I kind of joke around with this, but because we were around in the beginning of the 1980s and we're still making music, I'd like to think that we've just kind of moved back and forth through time. And I do mean forward as well, and that we bring things from all areas. You know, it's like, our music is not necessarily of the moment. It reaches back to before civilization, and it moves forward to whatever is happening maybe, you know, 200 years from now. And in some ways, I think when we're working on the music, because it's not like we're sitting there and writing it. There's lots of programming that goes on in, in process to build it, but then we start improvising as we're making the songs. And I feel like at that moment, in each piece that we're, we're somewhere else and we're just pulling in energy from all over the place. I think hopefully our fans, our people who are listening to the new records when they come out, will, will pick that up. From their very first EP, Night After Night, in 1981, we now arrive at Nightclub from the 2017 Sacred Machine EP. very singular sound, unique sound. I would never play with other people in that group. It's 
it's the members, the original members, and that's who the group is. Um, we have a lot of things coming up. It's kind of an exciting time because we have, uh, we're going to have a new EP, we're going to have a new album. There's going to be a reissue of the first two records. There is a live album from the last show, which was Berlin Atonal 2014. And we have a good amount of unreleased stuff. And the reason why I've been referring to the acute record was that that was an occasion where we were able to release a few of those cuts from the early days and also from the days after the Factory album. But that um, you're going to be able to stay tuned, and those things are coming up. Mike I wanted to let you all know that this episode is just one in a six-part series. The rest of the series will cover after the group split up and take a deeper look at several different projects, including Dominatrix. Death Comic Crew featuring the late Rom LZ. Currently active, Black Rain. Also, be sure to visit futureikeyard.com. This site will archive videos and images related to this series. Thanks everyone out there for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, and want to support it, please feel free to use my Patreon website. Patreon.com slash Stefan Scott Nelson. See you out there. <laughs>